Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Few topics raise the temperatures of federal employees as much as changes to their office spaces. Add to that the Biden administration's push for your return to the office and emotions ratchet up even more. In this week's federal report, Chuck Hardy, the chief architect of the General Services Administration, tells Federal News Network's Jason Miller about how the Workplace Innovation Lab is helping create the office space of the future. Since it opened in, in January of last year, January 23, we've conducted over 300 tours in the space with over 7,000 federal employees, which came from over 100 different agencies or bureaus, about 1,800 registered users on our website. Those are folks that can come in and book reservations and do things. Uh, last year, we had 4,200 individual desk reservations and over 3,900 meeting room reservations. Uh, we're getting feedback and input from these folks, and 90% of the top 10 rooms reserved were for four people, suggesting that the will was a valuable resource for federal agency teams to collaborate. And I'm happy to say the feedback about the will has been overwhelmingly positive. Customer experience rating of the will is 4.3 out of 5. And with many folks providing us good feedback along the way, we're also seeing 85% of the users really want to see the will keep going, and, and we're going to do that. Overall, some agencies use the space for off-site meetings. Some use it for helping drive change in their organizations to get people to broaden their perspectives and others uh, to experience what offerings are out there to help meet their missions. And some just because it aligned with what they had to do that day. And so they booked a seat and went in there and worked that day. So a whole lot of different experiences and reasons. But that's what we were looking for, and it's made that effort last year worthwhile and the first year of the will really productive. Has there been any feedback, positive, negative, neutral, that surprised you? Have you gotten any kind of trends you could point to in terms of, of what people liked or disliked so far in the first year? Yeah, there hasn't been, I, I think, any overwhelming negative feedback or, or positive feedback since I love, absolutely loves this one thing kind of thing. So it's, it's all over, been, like I said, predominantly positive. I think one trend that we're seeing, and I think it's going to remain, is that the work and workspaces need to remain agile and flexible, or in other words, kind of fluid to address kind of the current environment we're in. And we need to manage that ever-changing environment. So this makes managing the surge vitally important in properly planning spaces. And I think agencies are learning that. But more directly, it's sending that message, don't build space for your busiest time of the year. Instead, build it for the mean and have solutions in place like federal co-working, like commercial co-working, or like telework that effectively and efficiently absorb those surges. And so they got to see how working in a, let's call it a joint use federal facility to help solve some of those surge needs, some of those locational needs. Another trend we're seeing, and it's best demonstrated in the will by an increased demand for collaboration spaces in neighborhoods for uh, organizations with a hybrid workforce, places they can go and bring people together, meet in an effective way and accomplish their mission while not ignoring the individual solo work that's going on and the headset downwork. So if you think about it, nobody's coming in or honestly nobody, but rarely does someone come in to collaborate for eight hours straight. They, they do need some places to go and conduct heads down time. And so we're getting feedback and I think in a positive way that there's ability to do both of those. And then finally, and this is, I think, a trend that's going to last as well, is proper acoustical design. With the increase in hybrid meetings going on in the office alongside the individual solo work I just mentioned, well-designed acoustics is essential. And so not only from the furniture side where you're seeing a lot more soft surfaces, uh, the technology that provides uh, 
noise dampening technology that makes conversations more audible. All those solutions agencies are seeing that probably weren't in place two years ago or three years ago that are solving some of the concerns they have about office environments. So again, I think the trends point toward agile, flexible, and proper acoustical design with variety of, of space types. The acoustical design is so important. People forget that. Uh, and I think people got used to working from home where it's probably quieter, easier to mute things. When you are looking at what are some of those technologies that maybe have really stood out to you? Again, you said softer surfaces, noise, uh, tempering uh, designs. Is that the type of thing you're starting to look at more of? The, those are the things that you've had people talk to you mostly about. Give me a sense of, of about what you're seeing in, in that realm. There's been a lot of different technology kind of improvements over over the last year and, and finding their way into the will. And on the acoustic side, from the start, we had, for lack of a better way to characterize them, phone booths that were sound controlled rooms that you could go into and there were one person booths and there were four person booths. And letting agencies and having the conversations with agencies know that the cost effectiveness of providing a furniture solution for a sound controlled environment that can be moved. It's plugged into the wall into a normal outlet, but if you don't need this location, you can pick it up and move it someplace else. Are things that can start to solve some of these mixed scenarios that will go on in the office where the person next to you is having a call, a webinar call where he's he or she is talking out loud, or you have a loud talker that's just on the phone with somebody. A solution like that where they can step away from their desk, walk into that booth, have that half hour, hour call, and then walk back to the desk and conduct business both cost-effective and efficient for the business lines that we're dealing with. And the other thing that the will did was you hear about a lot of the bright lights and neat stuff out there, but the will actually let people try it to see, oh, this actually does work. Yes, I could sit in here for a half an hour and have a phone call or an hour and have a phone call and not feel claustrophobic. People outside this aren't hearing me. I'm not disturbing anybody. And they start to take those solutions and interpret it to their mission and their agency's needs and say, yeah, this would work for us or this wouldn't work for us. And then many of our vendors also just swapped out products based on feedback they received from the users. So additionally, post Neocon, which is a major event for furniture industry in Chicago, that uh, is when the furniture industry rolls out new products uh, from their side. We saw some of those office offerings flow into the lab as well. Technology from the start was kind of tweaked into, based on user requests, multiple virtual meeting technologies that are used across government flowed into the startup screens, making meetings really just one click away. So whether you were on Teams or Zoom or Google, it was all on there and easy, somewhat frictionless connection. So all those kind of things to make things easier. Some of those phone booths that I mentioned were actually elevated. Uh, and we had some folks uh, ask about the accessibility of those. Since the start of the will to today, those manufacturers are already addressing the uh, accessibility issues in those booths. And so it's good to see that we're not only signaling changes that need to be made in their offerings, but the furniture vendors in the industry is actually responding with, with solutions. So it's all good. Sounds like a successful year. You went through all the uh, data and some of the statistics. Let's talk about going into 2024 and beyond. Uh, what's the next evolution for the uh, Workplace Innovation Lab? How's it going to continue to evolve? The lab will continue to evolve and it will continue on. Uh, we're moving from the second floor to some new space on our top floor in our 1800F building. And, and we're keeping one of the three areas that we had on the second floor fully operational as we do that because we wanted to make sure 
that we were still continuing to serve the federal population in, in D.C. while we're going through some of the changes and broadening. The seventh floor is going to broaden the scope of the workplace research we're doing. In addition to a strong partnership with technology in the furniture industry, it's also going to demonstrate some low-cost changes to workplaces that could reap benefits for our end users. For example, how can we take workplace change and achieve it reusing some of the existing furniture we already have? So one of the areas in the current will configuration was using all existing furniture. We showed how that worked and agencies appreciated that because we have a lot of agencies that are strapped for funding to retool their, their workplaces. And that's not necessarily a need in, in some locations. You have good furniture, you have good pieces. Let's, let's show you how you can do it. And the new wills can also show areas of how do you blend some of those? How do you get pieces of new, as I talked about those standalone pieces and how do you combine those with existing pieces you have? to respond to your current needs of today. So that's the plan for 2024 as we move to stand this up. And as we continue to go forward, it will continue to be kind of this advanced research program for GSA around furniture, technology, and workplace that will constantly feed us information from our clients' needs and our end users' needs on what we should be leaning forward into developing as product lines for us. Chuck Hardy, the chief architect at the General Services Administration, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah. 
excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency 
And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture, because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.